Good morning, I'm Pastor Dave, and we are in Romans chapter 6, which Angie just read for us. As you're turning there, if you haven't already, next week we have a one-session equipping class that Joshua mentioned in the beginning of the service. It's, it's now during the 11 a.m. hour next week, and so you'll have to come to the 9 a.m. service uh, to come to this class, but it's on, on God's Heart for the Nations, taught by Pastor Hudson Smith, so you, you, you don't want to miss that. Also on page 11, there's the information on the Advanced Initiative Conference. Uh, Advanced Initiative is a global movement of churches planted around the world by or among uh, South Asians. And so there's a conference uh, coming up. You can find other information on further announcements in the back side of your bulletin later on. But today and right now, we're entering into a new section of Romans. So starting in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we saw for a number of weeks condemnation, that we are sinners under the judgment of God. That's what it means to be condemned. And we saw that all the way up to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, we finally got to, to the good news. And some great news there at the end of chapter 3, and then we see it continue on in 4 and 5 in a section called Justification. So that's to be declared righteous. That's to be given Christ's righteousness. So we saw the bad news, condemnation. We saw good news, justification. And now from chapters 6 through 8, we're going to look at sanctification. And sanctification is this process by which we grow in holiness. It's, it's the process by which we grow in our love for Jesus. And we grow in our Christ-likeness. And so from chapter 6 through 8, that'll be our focus. Now, I have, a, I have a good friend at another church who virtually never preaches with an outline, never has points. I find that hard. Uh, Pastor Eric had 11 points last week for us. I usually have points. I probably hold the record for most points in Redeemer Church's history. But today I have no outline. So I just have the text, and we're going to unfold the text as we walk through it from verse 1 on down through verse 14 on this sermon entitled, Freedom from Sin. Well, let's just remember the context, though. So we've just come out of this teaching on justification, and in particular, uh, in Romans chapter 5, Paul revealed that through Christ, God spares us from himself. Salvation from sin, judgment, Death, wrath, God spares us from God. As believers, we can be confident that our salvation is secure. Even so, questions might arise after such a long section on justification. Paul, that's thrilling, that's great news. We're saved. What about our lives now? What does our relationship with Christ change about how we live? What blessing does future grace have on us today? Well, these questions are essential because our salvation is an already not yet salvation. We've seen this in previous texts. Christians are saved, but Christians are also being saved. We're saved from sin. But salvation, our salvation will not be fully realized until we're with God. Things are not like the way they're supposed to be. 
To be more specific, how shall we live now? What does our relationship with Christ mean for our lives today? And what about sin? If Christ saves us from our sin, what's our relationship with sin now? Now, you might remember a month ago in our service, I had us all stop and I had you do a little Bible study on your own silently right there in your seat, in your own Bibles or in the bulletins. And I asked you to underline some things. I asked you to circle some things. Do you remember those things that I asked you to underline? Well, I asked you to underline those things which were true of you, believer, if you're a believer, those things which were true of you as a believer when God saved you, the condition that you were in as a believer. And so he underlined several things, four things towards the beginning of that passage, four truths. We were saved while we were weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies, actual enemies of God. God saved us when we brought nothing to the table, even more so while we were still his enemy. So a natural question would have been asked, if we're saved by grace and we can't lose our salvation, we've seen that in these last texts. If we are saved by grace, can't lose our salvation, well, can we now live however we want to live? Some have called this getting our fire insurance. You think you've done enough to get saved, so you're saved and escape hell. Now that salvation's taken care of, you think, well, I can live however I want to live. Have you ever heard this teaching? I'm good, I'm saved, I'm converted, so I'm going to live it up. Now, it's not usually so explicitly taught in the pulpit. Imagine a preacher saying, friends, this is good news. You can't save yourself. Jesus saved you. Jesus has given you new life. He's given you eternal life and you really have it. You can't do anything to lose your salvation. So seize the day. Seize whatever you will. Live it up now because eternity is coming. Drink up. Get drunk. Have immoral relationships. Fight for your right to party. Cheat in school. Cheat at work. Cheat at life. Gossip. Slander. Do whatever you can to get ahead. You're saved. So now go forth and sin more. Now, I doubt even the worst YouTube preacher would preach in exactly those words. Well, while this might not be proclaimed so outrageously or clearly from pulpits, it is cleverly preached by false teachers and believed falsely and often lived out. There's, there's no preaching on the holy fear of God or the holiness of God. No preaching on the hatred for sin or the battle within our own hearts. And in our minds we start thinking, well, God will forgive me. And so a little sin here, a little sin there, it's okay. Because God will forgive me. I'm saved, once saved, always saved. It's a subtle thought. But this teaching reigns in some of our hearts all the time and in all of our hearts some of the time. What about back in chapter 5, Romans, verse 20? 
when Paul writes this, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. More sin, more grace. Paul says it. Does that mean we should go on sinning? There's a big word for this false teaching. I want you to learn this big word. It's called antinomianism. It's a big word. Antinomianism, anti, against, nomos, the law, against the law. Antinomianism, since you're saved, oh, you can go ahead and live however you would like to live. Question, it's probably on the reader's minds. Paul anticipates the question after his teaching in chapter 5. The Romans may have been asking this. So Romans 6 begins with a Q&A, a question and answer. And Paul asks both the questions and he gives the answers himself. He's asking the question of Christians. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, the argument went, not only can I still sin, but it actually makes sense to sin. If God gets more glory, the more I sin, well then I should sin because grace will abound. Me sinning uh, more makes sure the Savior has job security. Well, before reading the next verse, we can anticipate already what the Apostle Paul is going to say. We can anticipate his answer. And what he says in the original text is even stronger than what our English can produce. Verse 2, by no means. And I'm glad that our translation there in ESV puts an exclamation point after those three words. It's a strong reaction. May it never be. God forbid for heaven's sake, no. Paul says no way to this antinomian teaching. Why? Verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? When we become a Christian, friends, a significant change happens in our hearts. We're regenerated. We're born again. We're dead to sin. Now, some of us are thinking, okay, uh, what does it mean I died to sin? Because I still sin. Because I'm still tempted to sin. Because I still struggle. I still wrestle with sin. Well, Paul's not saying here or anywhere that Christians are incapable of sinning or that we're never tempted to sin. Let's be clear about that. There's another false teaching that says in this life, we can achieve 100% holiness. But this, this holiness movement teaching is wrong. You cannot attain Christian perfectionism this side of eternity. We will not achieve sinlessness in this life. We know that from our very passage. We know that because if we look at the end, so look down at the end, verses 12 and 13. Look at Paul's exhortation. So after all this teaching that we're going to go through, and we'll come back to this exhortation at the end. But just to look at it now, we know that this is true about us as Christians because look at how he exhorts and challenges the Romans. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. These are Christians. These are those who are saved. And he's challenging them. Let not sin Therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And then verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
Why would Paul challenge us with this if we no longer sinned? Well, the answer is he wouldn't. There would be no reason to. Well, Christian, it's true. After we become a believer, we sin less, but we're not sinless. There's a battle. So whatever Paul means in verse 2, it doesn't mean that we are without sin. The imagery, though, it's strong here, and it's strong for a reason. Paul uses the illustration of death and life. When someone becomes a Christian, Paul says their transformation in relation to sin is as dramatic as going from death to life. It's so dramatic that Paul asks a rhetorical question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul is saying Christians no longer live under the domination of sin. And so while we're not sinless, we are dead to sin, meaning we can't keep living in it the way we used to live in it. We've been transformed. That's why you can't separate justification from sanctification. Justification, our declaration of righteousness, God gives us Christ's righteousness, sanctification, this process of growing in holiness that I've mentioned, becoming more and more like Christ, looking more and more like Him. These go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. You can't be justified and go on sinning like you used to. You're changed. You died to sin. If you're justified, you will also begin the process of sanctification. Always, the minute you become a believer, the minute that you are justified, you begin this lifelong process of sanctification. It's not a downward trajectory. It should be an upward trajectory of growing like Christ. Well, at the same time, there's, there's hope for a better future, a day when there will be no more sin. Still sin today, but the day is coming. No sin, no temptation, no conflict, no turmoil, no lust. War will be no more, no murder, no anger. The future is bright. However, until then, we don't simply uh, sit back and let go and let God. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. As Christians, oh, we just, we let go, we, we let God. No, friends, we're not in limbo we're waiting, but it's not a hopeless waiting. It's not a waiting without action. We've all waited for things. Maybe you've waited in long lines. I'm sure all of us have. You're waiting for that job interview. Most of us moved here from another country, or we travel back often for our uh, visit to visit a family or visit uh, our home country. We've sat in airport terminals waiting for our flight. Most of us have experienced long delays, sometimes for hours or days. And no matter what you do, no matter how much you talk to the airline or the airport or, or try to f fix the weather conditions, it's out of our control. There's nothing you can do, but you sit and you wait. You let go. You let the airline, you let the airport sort things out. This is not what God calls us to do while we wait. We don't sit and wait at the terminal for God to take us to heaven. We work. We work while we wait. This is sanctification. 
We live pleasing lives to God during this time. If you're genuinely justified, sanctification is the next car on the train. They're inseparably linked. Followers of Christ can't think the grace of God in any way condones sin. Paul explains this further. Look at verses 3 and 4. He's going to show us how the transfer from the state of sin to new life in Christ happened. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who've been justified in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ, this is amazing, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. First thing Paul mentions here is baptism. In baptism, we're joined to Christ in his death and resurrection. This is the very picture we see when we witness baptisms, which are incredible. About a month ago, we, we baptized nine individuals in this church, and we saw a picture of death and resurrection of Jesus, a picture of believers with Jesus, Christians who have died with Jesus, Christians who were raised with Jesus. Now, water baptism doesn't save. Nothing saves. There's no checklist of good works to be saved, including baptism. But it's a picture of what Jesus has already done to save us. Going under the water, it's a picture of Christ's death and our death to sin along with him. Coming out of the water is a picture of Christ's resurrection and the resurrection life that Christ gives us as we're raised with him. Well, later in the passage, look down at verse 10. Paul shows that Christ's death was a death to sin and his resurrection meant living to God. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The point, those who participated in Christ's death and resurrection also have died to sin and lived to God. A Bible scholar, Doug Moo, makes an interesting point. He says, since chapters 4 and 5 are all about faith, why doesn't Paul used faith as the language here. Well, if we think about it, we might expect Paul to say something like, those who believed in Christ have been united with his death, or we were buried with him through our faith into death. So that begs the question, why is baptism used here? Well, the word baptizo, the Greek verb, means to be immersed in. The noun in verse 4 almost always has this meaning, which would refer to water baptism. So it doesn't seem like Paul has something else in mind, like baptism of the Spirit. Verse 4 continues, we were buried into, with Christ into death. So there's, there's several reasons Paul might have chosen to use baptism here. I'll just share a couple of them. One uh, is that baptism is a picture of salvation. Like I've just mentioned, the physical reality points to a spiritual reality. To be immersed in something, is, it's to be entirely covered by it. So in one sense, death engulfed us. We were immersed in death. And so in baptism, when we come out of the water, it's a picture that we're now free to new life. It points to our new identity as Christians. Just as Jesus died and then rose to new life, baptism points to the reality that believers are wholly united and identify with Christ. A second way to look at scholars like Doug Moo suggests that there's another reason baptism is used here, that Paul uses baptism as an identity marker with Christ in all the significant events in his redemptive work. 
easier said. Baptism in this view stands for the whole conversion experience. Well, either way, I think the key is identity. We've died with Christ, been buried with him, verse 4, and we will be raised with him. All that in these verses. By it, we've been brought into union with Christ and his redemptive work. The effect of Christ's work is at work in us, which is why we can have new life. A theologian, Richard Gaffin, says Paul doesn't deny the reality of sin, but he's affirming that while sin is indwelling, it's not dominating. This freedom is from sin and sinning as Lord or overmastering, enslaving power. Sin no longer dominates us because we are in Christ. Verse 5 continues Paul's train of thought. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Believers participate in Christ's death, death to sin, and his resurrection so we can have new life. There are past and future tenses used here. We've been united. If that's happened, we've been united with Christ. Then we have union with Christ because of the cross. There's certainly... There's a certainty regarding the future because of the past. We shall be united. There's no doubt. Verse 4, Paul says that we might walk in newness of life. That's the already. We have been saved. We can now live godly lives today. But there's also this not yet part. The future We're in Christ now. We can enjoy his life today. And yet being raised with Christ signals that we're waiting for the return of Christ and his raising our bodies to be with him. Jesus is coming back. And so we actively wait. We pray, Lord Jesus, come. Lord Jesus, come. Why? Well, because the world is not becoming a better place, is it? There will never be true peace on earth until Jesus returns. So right now we plead with God to stop the violence in Eastern Europe. Oh, we plead with God for peace on the other side of the Middle East. And temporary peace might come. We pray toward that end. But we know if we live long enough, the next war will begin. The next one. The next one. We can do our best to control the climate, control other countries, build bigger militaries. We can do all these things, but we don't have the power to bring peace on earth. And we can't rid the world of death and disease. That's above our pay grade. Only God can do these things. And only once Jesus returns and establishes a new heavens and a new earth, a glorified earth, only then will there be peace on earth. And so we wait. We wait in this tension of the already and the not yet. We're already saved, but we wait. And until then, we live holy lives because we can't help it. Verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body... Of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We can't help living for Christ because the old self was done away with through the crucifixion. There's a union with Christ. As Christ died, we also died. Now the old self here, I think, refers to the, our pre-converted self. In our conversion, in our union with Christ, as believers, we are no longer controlled by sin. Well, verse 7 just reiterates verse 6, Christ died, so we've died to sin. But not just that, we're also raised with Christ. This is amazing. Look at verses 8 through 10. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. We've died, but verse 8 also means we live with him. Now this is astounding. They go together. We died, but we live. This last phrase in verse 8 points to the future. It points forward to the day when all believers will be bodily raised with Christ. And yet, while well, on that day we will rise, today we've begun to enjoy the benefits, not yet of our raising, but of Christ being raised from the dead. Christ's resurrection means, verse 9, that Jesus lives where there is no death. He's conquered death. It has no dominion over him. He's, verse 10, dead to sin. Not because Jesus was ever a sinner, but in the incarnation, in the fact that Jesus became human, he was subject to the power of sin. In the Gospels, Jesus was tempted to sin. In the same ways we are, but had no sin. In that way, he needed to die to sin's power. He did by living a perfect life and dying on the cross, taking our sins. Well, think about the implication then. If we have union with Christ, if Christ is in us and we are in him, then if death has no jurisdiction over him, it has no power over us either. Jesus conquered death, so all his people have conquered death through Christ's death. We have full assurance of salvation. That's the already, but also full assurance of the not yet. Christ has saved us, yes, for today, but also for tomorrow and for all eternity. We can go to sleep at night. Fellow believers, you can go to sleep at night, not afraid, afraid of next week. But not just next week. You can go to sleep at night with peace in your heart because your eternity is secure. Not just next week, but forever and ever and ever. You will be with him. We need not fear about our eternal state. Jesus rose from the dead. This is one of the reasons why the resurrection is so important. There are many reasons, and that's a whole another sermon for another day. But Jesus rose and Paul saw him. This is an eyewitness. And because Jesus raised, so one day we will too. Resurrection gives us great hope. And we won't be raised with these broken down bodies, but new ones. Can I get an amen? amen. 
Amen. It won't be these broken down bodies. Our bodies won't hurt. Now, I don't know. Are you going to uh, have a 16-year-old glorified body? Are you going to be raised as a 66-year-old? Are you going to be raised uh, the age that you died? Uh, I don't know. Are you going to have the hair that you've lost in this lifetime back on your head? The weight that you gained this past year, is all that weight going to be gone in this glorified body? I don't know. I don't No, church, I have no idea. But here's what I do know. I know this. It's going to be incredible. Glorified bodies and you will not be disappointed. There'll be no disappointment. 1 Corinthians 15 says that our bodies will be raised imperishable. No death. No decay. Our bodies will never wear out. No injuries, no back pains, no sickness, no need for vaccines, no pandemics, no death. When Christ died, death died. And so I love the title of the Puritan John Owen's book. It was the death of death in the death of Christ. When Christ died, ultimately death died. For believers in the death of Christ, death has died. So here's a, here's a little death and end times lesson for all of us. Let me just share this. Hopefully this clarifies a few things for some of us. When you die as a believer, your soul, the innermost part of your being, is immediately in the presence of the Lord. Immediately. You're truly with Him. Well, that's amazing. It's not the whole story. Our bodies are put in a Grave. Our bodies rot. They decay. Back to dust. But there's good news even for your body. Immediately when you die as a follower of Christ, your soul enters the presence of God in heaven. But that isn't our final state. Some refer to this as, as, as the intermediate state. Now, this isn't the false teaching of purgatory in the Catholic Church. It's not a place of penance. It's not a place where you go to uh, work out your salvation by, by being cleansed or purged by God or doing good works. No, when you die, your soul is immediately in the presence of God. Twinkle of an eye, you're with him. Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today, today, not tomorrow, not next year, not a hundred years, but today, You'll see me in paradise. You'll be with me in paradise. But that's not where our story ends because Jesus is coming back. We have hope that Jesus is going to return. He's going to return to earth and he will raise our dead bodies to be those glorified bodies. And a rejoining of our soul and our body is going to happen on that day. And God will establish a new heavens and a new earth. This earth is going to be made new. And we see glimpses of this in the book of Revelation, Jesus rose, and one day our bodies will rise. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. It's the body which sleeps in the grave. And Paul says on that day there will be that great reunion, and not with these broken down bodies, but with these glorified bodies. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
This is for believers, those who've repented of their sin, those who place their faith in Jesus and are saved. Here's just a brief outline. Upon death, your soul immediately in the Lord's presence. Our body is buried until the day of resurrection. When Christ returns, our body, a glorified body, will be raised from the grave. And then our glorified body and our soul will be reunited with God on this new heavens and this new earth, which will be remade and glorified. Christian friend, that gives us much hope. Now, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Christ, this is more sobering to speak about the reality for those who don't follow Jesus. It's more sobering to speak about. I share this with love, care, and affection for you in my heart. Whether you're a child, teenager, or someone older, let me tell you what happens when you die. Upon death, your soul immediately enters torment in hell. Scriptures say that your body will rise one day as well. But not in the same way as believers. You will rise, stand before the judgment seat of God. We see this in Revelation chapter 20. We call it the great white throne judgment. And you'll be judged for your sin. See, for believers, our sin's been placed upon Christ on the cross. He's forgiven us through Christ. But if you're not a follower of Christ, you'll be judged for your sin. And then unlike believers who are with God in the new heavens and new earth forever, unbelievers are eternally separated from God in what's described as the lake of fire. Body and soul united there. Oh, friend, lest this sounds harsh to you, unbeliever, or even to you who are a believer, let me just say this is what we all deserve. Every last one of us in this room, we deserve that fate. We deserve that destiny. We have all sinned. Not one of us deserves grace. As I've said throughout the book of Romans, there are only two groups of people in the world. Those who are saved in Christ and those who are not saved. That's it. No middle way. No realm of indecisiveness. No third way. No other religion out there. You're either saved or unsaved. Everyone in this room is in one of those two categories. And to be saved, if you're here and you're saved and you're a follower of Christ, I want you to praise God today for your salvation. I want you to praise God that God brought you from death to life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want us to pray for those in our lives who don't yet know Jesus If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Christ in the most loving and gentle and urgent way possible, I plead with you today, believe. It's been a plea throughout Romans. Believe. Place your faith in Christ to save you. Because Jesus Christ is our only hope. We sang that in the very first song this morning. He's not a feeble, flimsy, I hope this works, here goes nothing kind of hope. He's the way, the truth, and the life. 
If you're not yet a follower of Christ, a friend, we're glad you're here. We pray that you would keep coming. But our prayer, our ultimate prayer for you is not just that you attend. It's not just that you sit here amongst us, but it's that you would place your faith in Jesus to save you. Every other religion teaches something falsely that you have this list of things that you must do to achieve salvation and to please God. But friend, we can never please God. So Jesus, God in the flesh, came to live the life that we couldn't live, to take our sin upon himself. That's what saves faith in Christ, not a to-do list. Jesus has already finished the work in his death and resurrection. When we trust in Christ for salvation, God transforms our hearts. We're, we're changed. We're free to live pleasing lives to God. Verse 11, we put our status in Christ into action. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're united with Christ when we believe. And so the grace found in the gospel doesn't leave us with an apathetic attitude toward godly living. What God has done for us as Christians demands a response. Paul says, Christians, consider your new reality, dead to sin, alive in Christ Jesus. And it's because of the status change that we can live for God. And we can hear the charge of verses 12 and 13. And this is a charge. Listen to it. This is what Paul is telling us as Christians. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. So here, verse 12. Therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Oh, we're saved. In a sense, though, we're also being saved. We've been brought from death to life, but we await that final resurrection. Yes, we've been raised from death, and yes, we will be raised from the dead, we're in the in-betweens, the already, not yet. How do we live in this already, not yet? Friends, we fight. We fight, not like ninja warriors. We fight better than ninja warriors because the weapons of our warfare are spiritual. We have spiritual armor, Ephesians tells us. We fight for holiness. We fight Satan, we fight the devil. There is a battle. A Redeemer Church, there's a fight raging in each of our hearts. What will win our hearts today? Will it be the supremacy of this world or will it be the true supremacy of Christ Jesus? Verse 14, don't let sin dominate you. You've been saved by grace. What's true of Christ is true of you. You're not under law, but under grace. Redeemer Church, don't let sin rule your life by obeying its passions. Let me say that again. Don't let sin rule your life by obeying its passions. Again, on the one hand, sin doesn't reign for the believer, but we have to fight. God transforms us and we fight. It's both realities. One scholar writes that sanctification is no automatic process. You don't get saved and saintly at the same time. We're in Christ, but we still sin. And sometimes it's tough to resist. So what do we do? Well, we fight. And I love this illustration that uh, the great Martin Lloyd-Jones 
shares on Romans 6. Read about it in a commentary this week. Lloyd-Jones shares this analogy or illustration of two fields. And it might be hard for us in Dubai to imagine two large grassy fields. What we see outside our windows is sand and desert. But maybe imagine that you're in God's own country there in Kerala or maybe in Palawan in the Philippines or in the British countryside or wherever you're from and you can imagine fields, two fields side by side to one another but with a huge wall separating the two. A wall so impossibly high that you can never cross over from one field to the other field. And Lloyd-Jones says that we are all uh, created and we are all placed in one field. Life begins for us in this one field, the same one, and it is a field that is ruled by sin and Satan. And that wall is too far to climb or scale to get to the other field. Walls are all around, they're too high, and you're stuck in the sin-dominated field. But God does something through grace. When he saves you, he opens your eyes to believe, and he reaches down into that satanic field. He picks you up, and he puts you on the other side of the wall onto the other field, and that is a different field. That field is ruled by Christ and righteousness. So you have the field ruled by Satan and sin. You have the field ruled by Christ and righteousness. Now what happens when you're saved? Well, there is a change in your position which takes place. A whole new relationship to sin and Satan. Now here's Lloyd-Jones's point. You may be in a different field, one ruled by God, but you could still hear Satan's calling over the top of the wall from that old field you used to live in. Out of habit, a little enticement, we sometimes still obey Satan's voice, even though we don't have to. This is what Paul is talking about. On the one hand, there is a status change. You are in Christ. But on the other hand, there's still an openness to sin. Again, we sin less, but we're not sinless. And so one way to not let sin rule in our bodies and to let it uh, obey its passions is to get as far away from that wall as we can. It's to flee as far away from Satan as we can. It's a big field. Both fields are big. But instead of playing with fire, instead of dangerously coming up to that wall, we run. We run from Satan. We, we fight by running away and running to Christ. Paul says in verse 13, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Paul speaking of parts of the body, he's saying, all of your abilities, everything you are and everything you do, don't let sin master you. Don't let sin master you. Let God be your master. Let God be your ruler. Well, the point, don't play with fire. Don't stay close to sin. Don't live among his lies. Don't spend time with people who tempt you. Get as far away as you can. Get close to God and his, his believers. Don't look at those websites which lead to other websites which lead to other ones. Be careful who you text and what you text them. 
Don't let money rule your heart. Don't cut corners at work. Stop gossiping. Say, get behind me, Satan. Not today. Not today, Satan. Not any day. And go to Christ. Run to the other side of the field and get as close to Christ as you can. Present yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. Read God's word. Pray. Ask God for help. Cultivate close Christian friendships. Share your life. Confess your sin. Tell others about Jesus. Redeemer Church, let's fight. Let's fight. There's a freedom from sin which God provides. Let's enjoy the field of God's grace and run from the evil one because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Let it not be you. Let it not be you. And when you're tempted, remember something. Remember something, church. Satan's on the other side of the wall. Don't listen to his lies. Be who you are. Christian, be who you are. Live your life in Christ because you are in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this glorious passage, somehow, miraculously, we are in Christ and we are dead to sin. Somehow, just as Christ has been raised from the dead, our bodies will be raised from the dead. Oh, Lord, this is even too magnificent for us to comprehend and to live out. Oh, Father, we praise you. We pray that as we are in Christ and as we share this union with Christ and as we have this, this newness in us, we pray, Father, that we would fight, that we would fight the evil one, that we'd fight the world, that we'd fight our own flesh. Father, would we fight? Would we strive for holiness? Lord, would we grow to be more and more like Jesus? Father, would we look more like our Savior, Jesus? Would we live lives pleasing to you? Would we live lives of holiness and lives of service and lives of love, lives of kindness and gentleness, patience and goodness, faithfulness and self-control? Oh, Father, would we honor you with our lives because you have changed us. You have already saved us and one day we will be with you, and we will be on this glorified heavens and new earth, and we will enjoy eternity with you, Father. Would we live in light of that today? Oh, Father, help us. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.